Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, Amazon raises its minimum wage, and one major way that the 2018 tech boom is like the 2000 tech boom, you know, right before it crashed. But first, the blue wave. So today we are exactly five weeks away from the midterm elections, and Democrats are feeling the sort of confidence they haven't felt in the past two years, or more specifically, around 8 p.m. Eastern time on November 8th, 2016. So they only need 23 seats to flip the House, and they believe they've got it as they've largely outraised their GOP rivals, had better primaries turnout, and have also a pretty sizable advantage in these generic Democrat versus Republican polls. The Senate map is more challenging based on the relatively large number of Democratic incumbents up, particularly in states Trump won, but that could flip too. And why it all matters is obviously far more than bragging rights and better Capitol Hill offices. The entirety of President Trump's agenda hangs in the balance on everything from immigration to taxes to regulation to judges. And that doesn't even touch on the possibility of impeachment, which could threaten Trump's very job. But for his part, Trump continues to predict a red wave, not a blue one, with Republicans believing that the Kavanaugh fight and this week's NAFTA win could energize those same hidden voters that swung the balance in 2016. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on all things midterms with Axios political reporter Alexi McCammond. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios political reporter Alexi McCammond, who wrote about this perspective blue wave on the site last night. So, Alexi, give me the best bull case for why Democrats are going to take the House in November. There are so many signs, Dan, of this blue wave that just continue to add up, but especially after Labor Day. And Labor Day is traditionally viewed as the unofficial official start of a campaign season. This election cycle has felt like it has lasted forever. But especially after Labor Day, we have seen the signs stacking against Republicans. More Democratic challengers have outraised Republican incumbents and candidates than ever before. More Democrats turned out in House primaries than Republicans this cycle, which is the first time that has happened since 2008. And that really shows this enthusiasm that we've been tracking since the beginning of the cycle. They've had a double-digit lead in the congressional generic ballot. Cook Political Report now rates 42 House districts in favor of Democrats. In 2010, for example, that number was just 36 for Democrats held seats. And we'll remember that Democrats suffered major losses in that election. So we're really seeing these signs just piling up. How do you see the Senate? It's obviously a much higher hill for a variety of reasons. Do you think there is a reasonable chance that Democrats could actually get to 51 in the Senate? It'll be a really hard fight for Democrats if they want to have a majority in the Senate. The House and the Senate are playing out in two totally different ways. The math just is really hard for Democrats. They are defending many more seats than Republicans. They have 10 Democratic-held seats in states that President Trump won by large margins in 2016. Five of those are considered really competitive. And the big thing that we don't know about the Senate races and how competitive it will be is Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. That is something that people ask every day how it will influence the Senate races. My take is that the longer Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation is dragged out and the closer it gets to November 6th, 
the harder it will be for Democratic senators, especially in these red states, to defend their competitive, vulnerable seats. It's interesting you say that there's a, a theory out there, at least, that when you look at Senate Republicans and the way they've kind of handled the Kavanaugh hearings, as you say, they think this is going to be good for them in terms of maintaining the Senate. It might hurt them with the House, but they don't much care what happens to the House. They care, but they don't care as much about what happens in their own chamber. It seems that Republicans are keenly aware that the battle they are facing in the Senate is totally different from the House. They know that the House is basically gone, right? It's a foregone conclusion that Democrats will take the House. I am hearing that now from Republicans more and more, whereas even in August, they would reject that notion for the House. Now we're seeing how Republicans are trying to go with this scorched earth strategy, whether it's with Kavanaugh or otherwise, to defend the Senate, to keep it in Republican control, because that is ultimately how they will feel better about Democrats taking back the House when they know Democrats will do everything they can to introduce articles of impeachment or follow through on investigations against the president and those around him. If they keep the Senate, they will feel better maybe about losing the House. You made the comment, the phrase foregone conclusion, and I would think that kind of going into the 2016 presidential race up until, you know, the ballots were already cast, even a lot of Republicans thought it was a foregone conclusion that Trump was going to lose that election. So give me the House optimist case for Republicans. Is there a a factor or some reason that Republicans should actually have some faith that they could pull this thing out? That they can keep the House? Yeah. Or is there none? Is there truly none? The one thing that I heard from a Republican spokesman for the Republican National Committee was pointing to the special elections and how Democrats have only won one of eight House special elections, even though the entire Democratic machine, this spokesman said, was focused on these elections. They still didn't pull out wins in the majority of them. That obviously is not a great piece of evidence to point to. Special elections are special in nature. They are unique. They are the only election happening at that time. I don't think they could be used as an indicator of what will happen across the country in normal general election House races on November 6th. I will say the most telling thing I've heard from a Republican strategist just this week who has worked on midterm campaigns for many cycles, including in 2010 when Republicans came out on top, The strategist told me that the magic polling number in 2010 was 50 percent to sort of decide or see how many losses Democrats would face. The strategist said this year, if you're not a Republican who is comfortably polling over 47 percent, you are going to lose your race. On the House side, is there a particular race you personally are most interested in, either because you think it's a bellwether or or just there's something about it that you're paying particular attention to? So we launched the Axios 8 for 2018 two or three weeks ago at this point, and that was eight races to sort of show how this so-called blue wave would be, right? Whether or not Democrats could wipe out Republicans in the House and if they could take back the Senate. One race that I am really fascinated by is West Virginia's third district, which covers the Huntington area in West Virginia. President Trump won that district by 30 points in 2016. There is only one outside Republican group that is spending significantly in favor of the Republican candidate, Carol Miller, who, by the way, has been down in many polls to her Democratic challenger, Richard Ojeda. Richard Ojeda is showing Democrats what a unique sort of unicorn-type Democrat can look like in a place like West Virginia. He is pro-labor. He has the backing of coal miners. He's pro-guns. He has led teachers' strikes and walkouts in his district in West Virginia. And you need to look at his YouTube videos because they're, he's, as you say, he is not close to the stereotypical Democrat, or really stereotypical Republican. He's not. And we saw that a little bit with Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania. But Richard Ojeda is just a different breed of Democrat. And I really think that if a place like West Virginia's third district, which is so red, flips to a Democrat in 2018, it will send a very loud and clear warning signal to Republicans here in Washington that what happened in 2016 
is not what is in their fortunes this cycle. Just because Donald Trump could win in some of these areas doesn't mean that they are guaranteed a win in 2018. Lexi, final question for you, which is a political question, not midterm specific. This is really more 2020. Uh, Our colleague Mike Allen this morning reported that Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, is going to go around the country over the next several months kind of talking up his book, but really probably trying to maybe lay the groundwork for presidential race. From your perspective on the Democratic side of things, is there a path to the nomination for somebody like a Howard Schultz? That's a good question. And Howard Schultz is someone that has been speculated to be considering running for a while now. From what I've read, he is sort of going with a more moderate strategy. He said he was focused on youth voters. But look, we're seeing the 2018 election is clearly a referendum on the president, which it historically is in midterms. 2020 will absolutely be the clearest example of a referendum against Donald Trump. And I don't think that the Democratic base, as fired up as they have been and will continue to be through 2020, will want to support and nominate someone who is moderate, middle of the road. Thanks to Alexi McCammon, political reporter at Axios. My final two on Amazon's wage hike and what's going on with IPOs right now, right after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique Smart Brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Amazon, which this morning announced that it will raise the minimum wage for all of its U.S. workers to $15 an hour. And I do mean all of its U.S. workers because it includes full-timers, part-timers, seasonal workers, and those at Whole Foods. Now, to be sure, this still isn't huge money, just around $31,000 per year for a full-timer who doesn't take any vacation. But some raise is obviously better than no raise for workers. So the question is, why now? Amazon simply says it's the right thing to do and that it's going to advocate for the federal minimum wage to be bumped up to $15. But to be clear, this is also about outside pressures. Some of that is coming from the political left, particularly Bernie Sanders, who actually filed legislation to make Amazon pay for the federal benefits of workers who need them. And it's also about unionization attempts, particularly at Whole Foods. And finally, there's just this basic reality that it has become a very competitive job market. And it's pretty tough to get someone to do grueling work in an Amazon distribution center for the same amount they can make behind a retail checkout counter. Finally, Jay Ritter, a University of Florida finance professor, released new data this week showing that 83% of the companies that have gone public in the U.S. this year are unprofitable. That's a new record, topping the 80% figure from 2000, a year in which many of the IPOs were for companies that soon went bust. Which leads to an obvious question. Are we setting the stage for dot-com crash 2.0? Investors generally insist that we aren't, claiming that those companies in 2000 weren't so much bad ideas as ideas that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Internet companies created while most people were still on dial-up or didn't have internet access at all, with smartphones still well in the future. Plus, a lot of the companies today are more mature than the ones were back in 2000 because there's so much extra venture capital money that companies can stay private longer. Now, for my part, I also tend to think the glass is half full, but also I'm going to retain a healthy skepticism. After all, there was a ton of optimism in Silicon Valley and Wall Street in 2002 until there wasn't. And we're done. Thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Fried Scallops Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.